Welcome to another episode of Surgeons Lives. I'm your host, John Monson. My guest today is someone known to me for 30 years or so, and uh, we have grown up in our faculty careers uh, together, although many thousand miles apart at the beginning. Dr. Tracy Hull has been in the Cleveland Clinic her entire faculty career. Um, she has become known the world over as an expert in complex reoperative surgery, inflammatory bowel disease surgery, pelvic floor problems, and anal fistula disease. She's become uh, an important uh, opinion leader and um, leader in general in the field of colorectal surgery, uh, culminating perhaps as uh, president of the ASCRS just a couple of years ago. She's been a tireless advocate for women in surgery and uh, is now uh, chair of the Accreditation Committee of the National Accreditation Program for Rectal Cancer. But there's much more to her life, and I'm hopeful that uh, in our conversations today, she'll tell us a little bit more about um, what I call stuff that matters. So without further ado, let's uh, go and uh, commence the conversation with Tracy. Uh, I'm John Monson, and this is Surgeons Lives. Um, so uh, welcome, Tracy, to Surgeons Lives. Um, thank you for... Uh, Joining today, I appreciate you taking the time out of what seems to be an ongoing um, and relentless busy schedule of yours. It, it is busy. Um, I am trying to slow down. I have to say kind of uh, in the last several weeks, I've uh, my my the rest of my office team has made uh, a very concerted effort to slow me down some. So <laughs> I'm trying to slow down. Are they winning? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's still busy, but it is. Uh, December was really crazy busy, so it's not at least crazy busy. So um, I don't know if you've had an opportunity to watch any of these or listen to any of these, but um, normally um, what I do and I will ask you to do um, is I ask the person to start with a, just a brief summary of life, uh, starting with the words, um, I was born in. I was born when my no, dad was in no, veterinary no. school. It's important because I was born when he was in veterinary school. Right. Um, and then uh, we moved back to my parents' hometown and my dad started a practice. And where, I'm sorry, where was that? Where he was? In Ohio. I was born when he was in veterinary school at Ohio State um, ah. University. And then they moved back to Fremont, Ohio, which is in northwestern Ohio, which is where both of them were born and went to high school and where they met. Um, and my dad, uh, my grandpa helped uh, buy a, a house with a good sized garage for the time. It was um, 1960. And my dad practiced veterinary medicine out of our garage and did surgery on the kitchen table uh, till about 1964 when he built an, an, a proper animal hospital when we could afford one. So um, at night, it was very common to um, have him be uh, operating on small animals on our kitchen table at one end and uh, us eating supper, uh, my sister, myself and my mother at the other end. Usually my mother was helping him. 
Okay. Um, it, I mean, it conjures up all sorts of visions, um, all of which would be illegal, of course, nowadays on about seven different levels. But Exactly. Um... <laughs> but 1960 to 64, I mean, that was not, there were not as many regulations. Um, it really <laughs> gave me an idea that animals are pretty hardy because, yeah. you know, we didn't have masks on. He had sterile gloves, but he didn't wear a sterile gown then. He yeah. just came by sedation. He didn't start to really intubate um, animals when he operated on them till about the late 60s, early 70s. So it was just IV um, medication. And he gave the medication and did the surgery. And my mom recovered them. I remember they would that we had a heater in front of our stove and they would lay in a box in the heater while she recovered them until they were um, warmed up and awake enough to go back out to the uh, kennels that was in the garage. And and in those days, um, uh, um, being a vet, like a Moonlight Graham type vet, you know the the town. Oh yeah. Um, was that um, uh, what's the way to put it? Um, you know, were you top of the social strata, or uh, in other words, did you make a good living doing that, or was it hand to mouth, or somewhere in between, or? Um, in the beginning, it was pretty hand to mouth. Um, that was why we didn't really build a, a proper veterinary yeah. clinic for several years because, um, you know, he had, sure. uh, he had debt from college. Um, and my mom worked for him and we all were in the office. Uh, well, once we built the office, we were in there constantly because um, everybody had to help. There was, you know, before we went to school, everybody had to help. So um, it was on uh, about 15 acres of land and we had some cattle. And um, in those days, it was not uncommon for people to, to have beef cattle. And, you know, we we raised cattle and butchered, you know, had cattle butchered and ate a lot of beef. Um, but as he went along, he was very successful and had good results. He was very he was a generalist. He treated in those days, there were a lot of cattle with tuberculosis and um, other diseases. And we did a lot of, I, I would go with him on farm calls. We did a lot of autopsies, particularly on cattle when they died. Um, and he would um, he would make an incision and then he would tell me to sew them up. And uh, I got a lot of practice um, sewing with cat guts because that's what he yeah. would have us sew them up with. Um, and I, I was pretty good with instruments, even I have to say before I went to kindergarten, cause I did a lot of sewing as he was talking to the farmers. <laughs> so I had, um, a lot of experience and I knew that ingrained in me that in the experience of watching him do a lot of surgery that I wanted to be a surgeon. I just didn't know what kind he also did surgery on, um, he had a very big racehorse practice. Uh -huh. and, um, we spent summers sometimes in um up by cleveland at northfield at the racetrack because he did a lot of racetrack work so he operated on a, a lot of racehorses um that was before specialization now you would send him to a equine surgical specialist for yeah that. of course a lot yeah. of those kinds of things so he had a very diverse practice um with uh, i mean he operated we took care of skunks we took care of raccoons i mean people had those for pets um, we boarded, um, um, skunks make very good pets. I have to say, they uh, make very good pets. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
So he would, de- so in those days they um, descended them and then the, people uh. would have these pet skunks that they would have in their houses. And then um, we would take care of them, you know, their whole lives, you know, give them immunizations. And when people went on vacation, take care of them. I remember one was named Petunia and uh, we took care of her for like 10 or 11 years uh, when the, for, you know, health care and for uh, when her family would go on vacation, we would board her in our boarding kennel. Um, so uh, he took care of a few turtles. Um, so, it, you he was know, a real was, generalist. Yeah. 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 But most vets were real generalists. Yeah, sure. Days. Sure. Yeah. And of course, nowadays, the, you know, the, the uh, top of the tree is, you know, like the equine, uh, the racehorse yeah. stuff. You know? Oh, yeah. The racehorse, uh, the thoroughbred racehorse uh, vets are really, um, and, and some of the other saddle type horses, like quarter horse equine vets, yeah. are very, very much, um, they're, they're the ones that are at the top of the veterinary ladder, I suppose. So your path was uh, not totally set for you, but. Um, you certainly got a glimpse of what you might end up doing very early in life. And our, yeah, and our, um, our clinic was almost connected to our house. So people yeah. would bring their animals like at all hours and on all holidays. Um, sure. We used to joke that at Thanksgiving, we would take bets how long somebody would bring some animal that was hit by a car um, my dad did his own x-rays, so they would bring it in. My mom would get the turkey on the table because, like, our whole extended family would be there, and we would be out x-raying a dog or doing surgery, setting a leg um, while everybody else was eating. And and that went on for a lot before. Now they have um, ERs for those things. But yeah. before that, um, you know, you just showed up. Well, at our house, they just showed up at our house. Yeah. Because people knew that we were always almost always at home and um that my dad he was a softy he wouldn't hmm. turn anything away are you are you a fan of all creatures great and small you know the tv series i know the tv series i i don't i've watched it a couple times but i'm not and and i thought it was very good but i'm not you know an aficionado of it if, by any means i lived it so i i, I don't need to watch. yeah exactly so nowadays um on uh i don't know it's one of the uk channels there's um a channel uh, it's kind of a docu it's a it's docu series of a guy called i think he's called a super vet um, and, um, he's become really very famous. He's actually an Irish guy who works in England. Um, and the forms of surgical intervention they do, uh, he's a small animal vet, you know, as uh-huh. dogs and stuff are just extraordinary. I mean, he has his own CT scanners and stuff like that. In his oh yeah. And it's a big deal. You know? Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of them have their own scanners, their own ultrasounds. Yeah. The big clinics have MRIs, like for, for horses. Yeah. yeah. Um, but some of the small animal places, that they'll have those things. It's really, it's pretty amazing. You know, x-ray machines, veterinarians have had, you know, just plain x-ray machines for, you know, since the mid-60s at least. So that that's yeah. not new but the more advanced things absolutely they do endoscopy um a lot of them do uh, upper scopes and um they scope to look for colitis in animals so 
So um, the transition from there to college, medical school, etc., was was not very challenging for you. Well, um, I don't think that I, I. I think that everybody goes through the part where, you know, you're pretty darn, you feel pretty darn smart in college and you're at the top of the heap and you go to medical school and you're lucky if you're average because you've got these brilliantly gifted people around you. So the book learning, um, while I had some experience in it and I could draw blood and give shots and those kinds of things, um, the book learning was still, I would have to say, pretty challenging. I, um, I, I have to. I'm not like my son is very, very smart. Like he's got, got a photographic memory. Takes after my husband. However, I am a plotter, and I have to like really study. And I'm not very good on standardized tests. So, I would have to say that medical school was quite challenging in that respect because, um, obviously, you want to pass. Yeah, that's for sure. And there's always, um, you know, there's always people um, in your year that, as you say, you end up you know, being average, you know, I mean, yeah. uh, in in my medical school year, um, there was a guy who's now a nephrologist in Buffalo, actually, but he'd come first in Ireland in um, the um, high school exit exams, the college graduating yeah. exams. And you know, he wasn't, he was by no manner of means nerdy or anything like that. He was like an ordinary guy who just, uh, and he would be out doing all the college things, you know, drinking and carousing, etc. Yeah. He just, he just cruised up the next day and come first. <laughs> he came first. And there were one or two people, you know, in the year that, that, you know, they found that really challenging because they wanted to win, you know, yeah. and, you know, there was no point, you know, because <laughs> there's no point. I just wanted to pass. That was, you know, I, I wanted to get the stuff I needed to get. I had to take a different view of things. So, you know, I went to Ohio State to medical school and I had to rearrange my thought process to say, OK, quit stressing out on everything. They have they have used this process to make good doctors. Just let them do the process on you and you know, average, average here is okay. And I think once I had a lot of um, anxiety at first about it. And then once I got that kind of through my head, I did much better and, and, and not, I was never like at the top of my class, never, but I certainly enjoyed things. And I always liked the clinic aspect of things. Um, the book learning was just always really hard. I studied a lot. I mean, I, I have friends just like you described it, studied not nearly as much and i would be like how do they do that you know i i had to study a lot so but you you were not struggling with what you were going to do i mean you you know you uh, you I knew. you were going you knew what you were going to do um, oh yeah i said um, from day one i was going to go into surgery and they uh so i did my surgical uh, third year clerkship relatively early. And um, I was, um, so a lot of people were intimidated by some of the male uh, attendings. I just like, I wanted to be on their service. I, I, they didn't, you know, I had put up with my dad who could be very intimidating. So 
you know, and they would yell and carry on. I was just like, yeah, I've seen this before. And, and it was, I really learned a lot and I had really good instructors and really, really good residents that really let me be involved as a third year medical student. It was, you know, it just cemented it more that that was what I wanted to do. And you were in uh, upstate um, for residency? Right. And uh, Syracuse? To, uh, Syracuse, New York for my surgery residency, correct. Yeah. And the plan was always to go back to Ohio? Um, the plan was to be a plastic surgeon. I think my sister uh -huh. has um, deformities. She's mentally challenged and has deformities. And I think growing up, she's my only sibling. And I think growing up, that made me very interested in plastic surgery. I did a lot of extra rotations. So in Syracuse, the plastic surgeons were the most miserable lot of people I've ever met. They were they were really grouchy. And residency was hard. It was before Libby Zion's uh, yeah. trial, and we were on a lot of every other night. You'd go home and go to sleep and get up and come back and be on call the next day, a lot of that. And um, the plastic surgeons weren't doing that, and they were really grouchy. The colorectal surgeons were always very happy and very willing. I, a lot of people were willing to teach. Don't get me wrong. I had I had a great a great learning experience, but the colorectal surgeons were very, very happy. And when I decided I wasn't going to do plastic surgery, I was thought, well, I would just do general surgery and go back to my hometown. And um, my good friend in um, in residency, Chris Merce, said, well, I'm going to do colorectal. And, you know, that might be something you're interested in. So actually, I did not apply and think about it till we, you know, the it opened in June, and I didn't even think about it till like July or August. So I was, I was kind of late to getting involved in doing a fellowship. And you landed in Cleveland Clinic. Um, All by accident, but yep. Well, that's yep. what I was going to say. I mean, uh, I mean, it was turned out to be a good accident, but. Um, yep. Um, it, it was a phenomenal, I, I was very, there's a lot of things that have happened in my professional career with a lot of luck. And that was one of them. And it turned out to be really, a, you know, extraordinary opportunity for me. And, um, you know, I, I thrived, I really thrived during my fellowship year. Um, where was your, when you did the applications, where did you think was going to be your first choice? Minnesota. Minnesota, yeah. And uh, I love Dr. Goldberg, but I had gotten married um, in 1986 and then left and went to Syracuse. And my husband worked for Ohio State in their chemistry department. Um, he ran their um, NMR machines. And so we had this apart marriage, yep. which was probably good for the marriage because I got my electricity turned off three times. He had to come up and get it turned back on because... I, I, you know, you have to realize, you know, that I couldn't pay my bills. You, you didn't have all the things you have today where, you know, I didn't even have direct deposits. So I'd have all these checks sitting there and I couldn't get them into the bank because I couldn't get to the bank when the bank was open. And so, yeah, I got the electricity turned off a couple of times. And so my husband would come up and he would never see me awake. And it was, that wasn't a very good situation, yeah. but he would, um, he would make sure my bills got paid. So I was, you know, really happy about that. And I really did want to go to Minnesota. Two of the um, staff at uh, the faculty at Syracuse, they were from Minnesota. 
But my husband said, you know, I don't know if our marriage can survive you going to Minnesota. So that, so I looked very strongly at Cleveland and at Erie, Pennsylvania and at Ohio State. So do you, who, do you remember who interviewed you in, um, in uh, Cleveland? Oh, I remember the interview very well. It was <laughs> very daunting. So, yeah, it was, uh, I can tell you exactly. It was Fazio, Oakley, Lavery, uh, Milsom and Church. And they sat on one side of a table and I sat on the other side and they yeah. asked questions. And I'd been there, it was like three or four in the afternoon. I'd been there all day. So you have to realize, so I went to, um, I, I uh, had become good friends with somebody that was a cardiothoracic surgeon, Bruce Levitt, who went back to um, went back to Vermont. So I went to visit him in Vermont in one of my weekends off, my husband and I. And his next door neighbor came over. Um, I think he really didn't want to have to babysit with his kids because his wife was out. And he goes, oh, we're going to introduce you to our next door neighbor um, because he's a colorectal surgeon. It happened to be Neil Hyman. And I only think he came over because Ann Levitt was cooking and watching the kids. But he talked me into, I hadn't actually applied at the Cleveland Clinic then. And he talked me into applying at the Cleveland Clinic and was really very enthusiastic about it. So on the way back, we stopped at a payphone. There's no cell phones then. And I called the Cleveland Clinic and they said, oh, I can remember they said, oh, you're, you're not, your CV isn't your application's not strong enough for the Cleveland Clinic. We we don't think you're our material. I said, okay, thank you. So I get back and um, they weren't, you weren't supposed to get called out of the OR. And on a, so I get back on, and on a Wednesday, they call me and said, we just had a cancellation on Friday. Can you come for an interview on Friday? And I said, oh yeah. And I had just been on call on Tuesday, so I had to switch and take call Tuesday and Wednesday in a row. Could never do that now. And then Thursday night, drove to Cleveland, and my husband came up from Columbus and met me. And um, then I had my interview. Uh, the interview, Dr. Lavery, I'll never forget, looked at me with you know this poker face and says, why should we take you? You're nothing special. And I've teased him about this since. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is such a disaster. And uh, as luck would have it, one of the one of the well, faculty. What was your answer? I work hard and I will make this place proud. He goes, <laughs> everybody says that. <laughs> so anyhow, I, I had supper that night with my husband before I drove back on Saturday. And I said, oh, this was terrible. And they'll never take me. But. What happened actually was um, a, a surgeon named Dr. Chung, who had been in Syracuse, and I had been his intern. So, you know, this is several years, and then he had come to the Cleveland Clinic. He went to Dr. Fazio without me asking and said, you know, she is really good. You should take her. He only saw me as an intern. He did bariatric yeah, surgery. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was how I got ranked. But I was ranked 15th. They made sure I knew that when I got here the first day. <laughs> So I, I, out of uh, their three choices, I was not very high, but there were a lot of people that must have turned them down. So anyway, it was a lot of circumstance, but it was great. And um, uh, decades later, 30 years later, you're still there. I know. Yeah. I know. Isn't that amazing? You haven't changed jobs. That's true. Um, and um, 
so throughout that time frame, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing known or, or consciously or subconsciously, your dad must have been something of a, a significant mentor to you. I mean, just because you were working closely, whether you, in, in those days, of course, people didn't use the term mentor. Um, oh. um, but throughout um, your career, did you, was mentorship something that you thought about or um, just availed of as it came up or, you know, how did that work for you? I never thought about it. Yeah. Never. Mm -hmm. I was so lucky. People kind of looked out for me and took me under their, you know, their auspices. But, you know, I never actively can say that I sought out mentorship, but I, I had wonderful mentors. So I was very lucky. Um, my dad was, he was influential, but my uncle, who was an internal medicine doctor and uh, really, really good and ended up going back to um, our hometown because my grandpa had leukemia and he actually kept him alive for a long time because he was, he was one of those doctors that, you know, he would, he would just look at every lab and just really, really was very, very detail oriented and I volunteered at the hospital um, when I was in high school. And that really cemented that I wanted to be, I couldn't decide veterinary medicine versus human medicine. And I didn't want to be an internal medicine doctor, but I wanted to be a doctor like him. He was very well respected. Um, he was extremely, um, like I said, detail oriented. He also like threw charts and yelled at people things. I told him, I told him recently, you'd be fired if you acted like that today. But I mean, in those days, that was, um, yeah. that was how people, I guess, made a point. I don't know, but I would, uh, I volunteered. It was funny because he would be in a terrible mood and they would like, he'd want a chart and they would give me it. Like he, he, they give me the chart and make me go take it to him. And I would say, you can, you know, stomp your feet and act bad. It doesn't bother me. So I had a lot of that experience of people that could have behaved better that, you know, yeah, right. Okay. So, uh, I mean, I, there's, I can ask you this at any time during the conversation, um, but I might as well ask you now, um, uh, you know, the world has indeed changed a lot since then. Um, mm -hmm not just in terms of ex what might be considered acceptable behavior, <clears throat> but um, also in terms of, you know, people being advocates for different, um, different groups, if you like. Um, um, would you, um, outside of, you know, standing up for yourself, which you obviously <clears throat> did without too much difficulty, um, would you consider yourself an advocate um, for women in surgery or, um, I mean, how have you, what's your observation on the world now in 2024 versus 30 years ago when you started on faculty? Well, I think that certainly there's a lot more opportunity for women. Um, I get a little concerned because I worry sometimes women can use it, I think, as a crutch. Like, you know, you're, you're, 
doing that because I'm a woman. They don't do that so much to me because I'm like, I'm a woman too, right? But there, there are a lot of things that I get concerned about. I think that maybe the pendulum now is swinging that, you know, we're discriminating against white males sometimes, right? So we have to really be thinking about when we're looking at candidates, um, to me that we're being, you know, thinking about it with the right lens. Um, I've advocated for women, but I've advocated for a lot of men too. I mean, I, I think that sometimes you need people to advocate for you because of circumstances, not because of your gender. Um, and, you know, sometimes you just need somebody to stand up for you that's got more marbles in their jar than you do. So I guess I do advocate for women, but there's a lot of men who come to me with their concerns or problems, and, and I advocate for them too. I think that in surgery, somebody just asked me this today, and um, I think you have to still, I don't care if you're male or female, you have to have a very thick skin. Um, you can't take things personally, especially in the OR and the heat of things going wrong. You know, you cannot take things personally. You got to step up, have thick skin and, and do what you can to help with the situation. Um, I think that keeping your head down, remembering that we're all doing this, the patient should be our primary focus. If you do those things, you, you really can't, you know, it's, that's what you have to do, I think, to really um, be successful. And you shouldn't be looking for a crutch like, Oh, well, you know, I didn't get this because I was a woman or they did this. I mean, I worry because sometimes I worry that there are some people that feel that way, you know, gender wise. And I hope we're just looking at people as the best candidate. Do you, um, you know, I, for many years in the States, you know, people call me up who are, you know, Irish or English and say, you know, and they will tell me their story of wanting to move or being in the States and all of that sort of stuff. Do, um, um, do people, do women go to you uh, now more than they did um, on the basis that, you know, 25 years ago, it wasn't really a conversation. I mean, the, the challenges were there, of course, Um and, and probably worse um, for, you know, for women. But, you know, do do you attract um, people to come for guidance and advice on gender issues or just on surgical issues, career progression in surgery in general? I seem to attract people on all levels. Yeah. I attract them on family advice, career advice, <laughs> what to do with patients. Um, that in the last several years, I, I think since COVID has kind of receded from the, you know, main focus of everything that we were thinking about, I have decided that I have given a lot of advice and it is on many different levels, even cooking. I had somebody call me up and ask me how to cook a turkey because they wanted to cook a turkey. So I have to laugh, many <laughs> levels. Are you a good cook? 
I'm not a good baker, but I can cook. It's all about getting everything um, at the same time. I like to cook for like a lot of people, like 40 people or something like that, because oh, then wow. you just, you know, I don't like to bake. So desserts aren't my forte, but, you know, the getting everything so it is ready at the right time is, you know, where That's where I shine. It's a big skill set. It's a big skill set, um, for sure. Um, are you optimistic for? You know, I I did one of these with Neil Hyman, um, and he, you know, he he was saying that he, you know, he's very concerned about the young surgeons starting out today, and he he wants to be a resource for young surgeons starting out because of the challenges that they face that are different to the challenges that that he and you and I faced. Um, and, you know, they're uh, uh, more challenging, if you like, in terms of, you know, the administrative issues, the governmental issues, the regulation issues, and the lack of, lack of recognition, if you like, and value, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, you know, where do you stand on uh, on all of that? Are you optimistic for a young surgeon nowadays, or do you think do you look at their the career that's ahead of them and say, yeah, that's not what I would want to do? Oh, absolutely not. I think you have to be optimistic. Um, whether you are or not, I think that one thing surgeons will always have a job. I if I was a radiologist or a pathologist, I think AI is going to really encroach on their jobs. Um, and I think that there's a lot of job security. I think it's a fascinating, you know, the human body and what we do to it and it heals is, is just incredible. And I think if you go into it and you remember those things, um, you know, that, that wonder of, oh my gosh, this, this person is letting me operate on them. And sometimes I have to not let that get in my head because if you're doing a really big surgery, that sometimes that personal component of it is, is, is not good for your judgment in, this, in the OR. But I think that, you know, I think there's still so much opportunity and yes. But I, I can, so I go back to like the early 90s and, you know, I remember Dr. Fazio saying, oh my goodness, there's so many regulations and I can't believe it. And we have to sign all these charts and they're talking about, we're going to have an electronic medical record. That'll be so horrible and terrible. He couldn't type. So it was terrible for him and all these different things. And he looked at me and he said, you don't even act like it bothers you. And I was just like thinking it doesn't bother me. It's just the way things are. So I think part of it is in youth, you have a different perspective and, you know, young people have a different perspective than you and I had, and they had, they've come with a different skill set than you and I had about coping with things. I still think we have to be mindful of, of, of how they internalize, not errors, but complications. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, how surgeons, some of them, you know, just want to quit after they have a, a leak. Uh, yeah. things like that. So I think they need a lot of support regarding that, a lot of support. Um, but I I am very hopeful. There's a lot of really, really fantastic young people. And I look at them and I can see so many aspects of me in them. Um, and I think that 
yes, you know, we worry, are these people going to want to take care of us? Are they shift workers? Um, to get through general surgery residency, I don't think you're going to be quite like that. And um, I, I think that things are okay. It, you know, I, I don't, I never think of things as totally rosy. That's just not my nature, but I think they're okay. And I'm hopeful. And yes, there are a lot of challenges. And I think that that they just have to be, just continue, continually support each other. They have to support themselves, support their group, because they come with a whole different mindset and skill set than, than we had. Well, they don't have to go to the bank to put the checks in. So they're they're okay with the electricity. Uh, they just put <laughs> it in their phone. I'm sure if they got their electricity turned off, it would be rare. That's for sure. <laughs> so you, you may not be worried about, um, you know, poor Vic. Um, um, by the way, I don't really type myself, so I do understand the issue. Um, but but there's not much you can do about it. And, um, you know, voice recognition software helps a little. Oh, Yeah. Etc. Et Especially as it gives you an enormous get-out clause by saying this was dictated, and therefore everything that's wrong is not my fault. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> um, but you know, if that doesn't worry you, um, uh, wh what does worry you today in 2024? What you know, what do you look at and you go, "That's a problem." Well, in medicine, um, in general, I hear we're going to have another COVID-type thing. I think that that's a real possibility. Um, that, and I don't think we're remotely ready like we weren't ready yeah. before. Um, I worry about how people work together in teams. Um, I think teams are so crucial to care of patients in this day and age. And um, I think we need to be really teaching a lot of leadership and team skills in medical school and residency. I think that's one of the biggest things that I think is different now than when I did my surgery residency. There was a lot more siloing. You know, there's a lot of team approach now. There is. It's interesting, you know, a colleague of mine in England, um, you know, points out that one of the difficulties with super specialization, which on one level is very good, um, but on another level is a problem because nobody's in charge. Um, you know, they're in charge of the left lung, um, yeah. but they're not in charge of working out what what's the plan here um, yeah. in terms of when they just, they come in, they do their thing and they go. Um, and the patients see this, I think, um, you know, they recognize, you know, who do they go to? Uh, right. Uh, and that, and that's a good point. Um, and and I, I think that's a problem. And, uh, and, you know, yeah, as you say, you know, teaching team skills, uh, I'm not sure that people do teach team, team skills. They talk about it a lot, but not necessarily do, um, the actual teaching. So, um, on the rare occasions that you, and hopefully increasing occasions where you switch the light out of the office and go home, um, what, uh, yeah, I've seen you, um, my favorite um, video uh, conference was walking along with the horse um, during an, an, a, a very, very important um, discussion about rectal cancer. Um, <laughs> And what um what are the uh, this this um 
this podcast is subtitled Stuff That Matters. What What is the stuff that matters to you outside of the office? My family matters. Um, uh, you know, my, my husband, my nurse said to me uh, one day when I was talking about another surgeon, she said, well, you're lucky you picked a good partner. That's really important. And I think that's really important. You know, pick somebody that... Um, is going to understand what motivates you in your career. And I'm very lucky. I have a, most people have not seen my husband because he kind of stays away from medicine, but I have a very good supportive husband. My sister who's mentally challenged lives with us. And so he has some duties with her, but when I get home, I have all the duties. She's fairly self-sufficient, but it's, it's like having a five or a six-year-old, you know, every night, Mm -hmm. What am I going to wear tomorrow? Things like that. I have to check to make sure she brushes her teeth, that, those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, so my family is very important. My son is still working on his PhD in paleontology. And uh, he moved back home, which is fine with me because he helps with things at home. And hopefully in a year from now, he'll be defending his thesis. It's COVID was very tough on his education. Sure. Um, of course, as a paleontologist, that's when the big bucks will start rolling in. <laughs> no bucks. I told him, I said, you're, you're TAing, that's fine because you've got a job. I don't know. But yeah. um, he is like this, you know, he's really a very, very brilliant kid. And I love spending time with him. And, you know, we do things um, occasionally. Um, I have horses. My sister rides every weekend. We go to um, the horse trainers and ride. I keep the horse at the trainers because if I want to compete and show, um, somebody has to be able to have time to make sure they get their blankets on to keep their hair coats down. They're fed exactly the same time. They're exercised if I don't get home, those kinds of things. So, um, and she rides her horse, and I ride my horse every weekend. It's about two hours away. Um, and the I horse is two hours away? The trainer is two hours away. Wow, yeah. that's a long way away. Yeah, every weekend we go there and ride and come back. And no, That's um, your whole day, basically. That's like... Well, you get up, you know, it's surgeon's hours. You get up early, you're there, you know, at... Oh, dark 30, as the trainer says, he knows that I'm going to be there really early and, you know, then do your stuff and come home and you can be, you know, home by 12 or one o'clock and have the rest of the day. Um, so. And you have two horses? Actually, we have five, but. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah. This is, and. Some um, of them are really old. Three of them are very old and, you know, they're like, we have two at home and those are. We have a pony who's 40-some, so, you know, that's like a pet. Okay, wait a minute now. So hang on a second. Now, we've got there's horses at the trainers. Yep. And there's horses, horses at, at the trainers and two horses at our – well, one's a pony and one's a horse at our house. Okay, so you're a, you're a good buyer of horses. You're, you're not a very oh, good seller. I wouldn't seller. say that. Oh, no, but, no, But no. you're not a very good seller of horses. That's a better thing, yeah. yeah. No, um <laughs> – when I was in high school to make money, I would um, I would buy horses that had some kind of quirk, like their owner couldn't get along with them or couldn't ride them, and I would get a show record on them and sell them, and I, I made money, and I did well then, but I'm not nearly, I've lost that skill, so yeah. I um, I, I picked out a really good horse nine years ago, and I still have him after all this time, and I've won like three saddles with him and lots of prizes and 
he still likes to be shown and he's he's really fun to and ride. What is your event? Is it uh, show jumping or three-day eventing or what? Oh, have it, no, no, that three-day eventing, that's, you have to have, yeah, that's way too, <laughs> that is way too scary for me. Um, uh, so I do jump. This horse wouldn't jump though if his life depended on it because he is, um, he just is scared of those things. He drives and he does um, dressage and does just different events where he has to do really precise movements while they're judging my equitation. So he is um, really very, very good at those things. He's really responsive. Everybody likes to ride him at the trainer's barn because he's very, very smart and responsive. And so, how far do you go with uh, for your events? Um. Well, they're never very close, unfortunately. So uh, we usually go to Oklahoma for and Texas for national events. Um, Oklahoma twice a year, Texas once a year. Um, and uh, it's nothing to go for the weekend over by Chicago and show and come back. So um, I, I try to stay within eight hours for a weekend show. And then if you're going to go to a, a big a big competitive show, you're going to, you know, drive. To where it is and it usually is not close yeah i mean that's um that's quite a hobby and of course horses are not inexpensive um you know my husband reminds me of that all the time yeah, yeah. well i you know i i you know i have a you know this problem oh here, i know you know? yours is uh, not inexpensive either well so th this is a savings plan um oh. because well, because, you know, if you, uh, the, unfortunately, there is really only one ending to the horses. Right. Um, whereas these, you know, if you're lucky um, and don't, you know, that you can sell them um, for hopefully more. Um, now there's the, in both, uh, in both hobbies, there's the money you spend during the enjoying of the event, yeah. you know, but that's, um, you know, they're, the, it's it's really just a large amount of of quite tried and trusted justifications for what you do, you know. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Well, mine is just a money pit. That's yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So now, um, I, so let me ask you. Um, uh, everybody tells me, and I, I maybe I shouldn't say this in public, um, but everybody tells me, oh, Tracy's retiring soon, um, etc. Um, although it doesn't sound as though anybody's told you. Um, oh, no, but, no, no, July. But so what was your thinking about there? I mean, how did that, how did you decide this is the day or this is the month or why? Or because um, some people, you know, everybody has a different spin on it. What, what was yours? My retirement plan, the way it is at the Cleveland Clinic, says retire at 65 or you'll be penalized. Right. So, so that's I'm retiring it. on my 65th birthday. Yeah, that <laughs> that set it up. And then what are you going to do? I don't know. I have a lot of anxiety over that. Sometimes I wake up at night and think, oh, my gosh, you know, what am I going to do? I don't really know. I haven't had a lot of time to really think about it. Um, you know, I... I hope that I can, you know, continue to show my horse. I want to continue to ride. Um, I think that that's important just for my physical well-being. Um, but otherwise, I have 
I, I'm a little nervous. I said to my husband, you know, I could work at McDonald's. And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. He goes, you would try to organize the manager and you would piss them off and they would fire you. So he thinks that that isn't a very good, um, a very good thought process. So I don't know what I'm going to do. I haven't, I haven't. Well, you've really got the, I mean, you have a very active hobby that, that you know, so that you, as long as, as long as the money holds yeah. out and the, and the horses hold out, that's a, a good hobby for you. Um, will you, will you do anything in the world of surgery? Um, I don't, not necessarily clinically, but, you know, I mean, I, uh, you know, I interviewed one of the very first people I interviewed in this was Rob Madoff. Um, oh yeah. And, you know, Robbie just basically walked away, um, cold Turkey moved, you know, sold up, moved to Brooklyn with his kids and, um, goes to the museums and has two cups of coffee and and to quote him is uh, mad for the opera and not a moment's regret um i you know i interviewed uh, jim fleshman who wants to work until he's 80 um and uh, you know part of that he says his wife doesn't want him hanging around the house you know so that's... Well, my husband's nervous <laughs> yeah. the honeydew list he's nervous about um so do you um you know do you do you think you'll walk away and and surgery will not see you again other than you know dinners and receptions and things or will you continue to to do something what do you think i don't know i, don't know. I have a lot of anxiety over that i don't know i think that um i'm just going to wait and see what happens i don't I haven't committed to anything. They would love for me to stay on and do things here. Um, and I just don't know. I, I just can't, I can't commit to anything because I can't even um, slow down enough to think about it. And maybe, maybe I'm doing that on purpose. I don't know. But I do, as the time gets, I've known this date for a long time because I've known what my retirement plan for the clinic has been. And I've known about it. And yeah. I've told them I'm retiring, you know, July of 2024. And um, as it's gotten closer, I am a lot more, really a lot more anxious about it. I was surprised. I actually, last night I woke up in the middle of the night and couldn't get back to sleep thinking, what in the heck are you going to do? Um, are you, you know, and my brain's like moving a million miles an hour. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. You got to get back to sleep. And um I don't know. I am very anxious. And I think that I'll just have to wait and see. In my life, I've been very lucky. Things have kind of um, fallen in my lap, so to speak. And um, my whole professional career, I've had a lot of luck. And so I guess I'm hoping that continues. I would say that and I don't have any big plans. Surgeons are... Um... You know, surgeons are pretty uni-skilled. You know, they're not very good at uh, 11 different things. I mean, the ones that are are exceptions in my experience. Um, and the ones that don't have anything other than surgery, again, just in my experience, don't do well in retirement. I mean, they because they're, they knowingly or unknowingly are defined by being that surgeon. And if they don't and that's have really it, true. And that, you know, 
I, when I, you know, walk through the ORs, they're the same ORs I've walked to through decades. And I think, okay, how is it going to be when I'm not here on a very consistent basis? How am I going to feel about it? And I, and I am, this month really has made me, for some reason, I've really thought about that. You know, when I come in in the morning, I'm almost always the first one in our office area and it's very quiet and nobody's here. And I think, how am I going to be, you know, when this isn't my domain anymore? Um, I'm starting to clean my office out because I've been in this off. I have not, I, I am coming across things from the 1990s, you know, and we just put a trash, a huge iron mountain trash can in my office because I was doing 15 minutes a day and filling up the iron mountain almost that we have that is for our, our office area. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, when I get this cleaned out, how am I going to feel? What am I going to feel? You know, so I, I, am, I don't know. I, you may recall um, about 20 years ago, I visited the Cleveland Clinic um, uh, yep. when, uh, and Dr. Fazio was there. And I remember being in his office and um, I said to him, have you have you just moved into this office? And uh, he said, "No. Why?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I didn't pursue the conversation because <laughs> I realized that he he viewed his office in a slightly different prism to me. <laughs> That's not to say my office is tidy for a moment, but you know. Plenty of packing boxes is a bit of a giveaway. You know? Oh, yeah. His is always like that. And <laughs> there would be boxes everywhere. And he would, his secretaries always knew where everything was. He he would have, that would be a little challenging for him. But his secretaries always knew where everything was. And, you know, he was the editor of DCR. <laughs> and he had, and it used to come in these bright orange bags, the um, mail with the uh, manuscripts. Yeah. And he would look like Santa Claus with his bag over his shoulder when he would go to, you know, decide and who's going to, and he would bring one down and say, review this manuscript. And he'd be like, okay, whatever. He just like go right down the line here. <laughs> but yeah, I know mine isn't quite as bad as that. Um, but you know, the, the, there's, there's a, I still have like slides when you have carousels. I, I open one thing and I'm like, holy crap, these are carousels of slides. Yeah, that's actually fairly close to being as bad as Fazio's, to be honest. No, no, no. Mine's in that. Mine was in a drawer, though. Oh, okay. In a box. <laughs> a drawer. I, I also remember visiting the late, great David Jagelman in, um, in, uh, in Florida. Florida, yeah. And, um, I, uh, I sat in his office and I, I, there was something surreal about the office that I couldn't quite work out. Um, he was sitting behind his desk and, you know, the, all the papers on the table and the desk were sort of moving a little like this, just imperceptibly. And I couldn't, I thought this was a little odd. And then I realized all the uh, styrofoam tiles in the ceiling were going up and down like this. And I, I thought, what is this about? Yeah. Um, and of course, the reason was because he had the air conditioning and the extractors on so much so that he could smoke. Smoke, oh, okay. <laughs> All right, that makes sense. So, he probably had it turned up as high as possible, right? He did. Yeah. And he, he said to me, um, I'm going to, I'll drive you to the airport, which is, you know, like 30, 40 miles from oh, yeah. where he was. And he had this white 
944 Porsche. And I got into the car and um, he got in and he shut the door and out of the ashtray, it was like a, a, a snow globe. <laughs> <laughs> Came all of this ash that sort of generally sort of went over everyone. <laughs> and he was quite a quite a personality. So um, when, whenever whatever happens, um, how... Uh, how do you how would you like to be remembered and and how do you think you will be remembered? Pretty much like what most surgeons that I took good care of patients and um was empathetic. Um I think that was a good surgeon. That's how I want to be remembered. And um do you think that's how you will be remembered? Yeah. I, yes, I do think so. Yeah, so that's a that's a kind of a, a a good thing. I mean, I, I've noticed, you know, when I ask this question of people, um, you know, that the younger people often seem to have, you know, a much more focused, um, specific, you know, a good surgeon, a good mentor, teacher, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, you know, a few of the older people focus much more on a, a more global statement, you know, a good person, um, you know, good doctor, etc., uh, etc. Et you know, a lot of the, a lot of the noise that travels around your career, particularly in the world of surgical politics, you know, doesn't really mean anything. Um, it's, you know, it's, what is it, what's it all for? That's really true. And I think, you know, the, the politics of, where you work, the politics of your profession, I think they become, at least for me anyhow, maybe not for everybody, they become a lot less of a focus as I've gotten older because, you know, I, I just do my own thing and that that's the best I'm going to do. I, I think I'm a lot more satisfied with um, that aspect of me. You know, you know, I'm not always the nicest person and Sometimes niceness is a luxury, you know, so I don't really, I don't really, um, you know, I don't let a lot of the things get to me anymore. You know, people like somebody will say something, you know, negative about me and I'll be like, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So let me ask you some uh, deep and penetrating questions um, that, um, you have to be careful answering um, because, you know, your reputation could hinge on some of these answers. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, and they, they will cover, they're also a kind of a test as to, um, you know, how rounded a human being you are. Um, so, um, are you a, um, a, a football or a baseball person? American football. Because, you know, I, I have to be careful. I'm not soccer, American football. I love American football. I cannot believe people, men, some women, but men do some of those antics and get up and do more. And I'm fascinated by like the defense and the offense and things like that. And some of the skills of those players. It, I'm very much into American football. And are you, what is, are you a Browns fan? Um, well, first I'm a Ohio State fan, diehard, have season tickets. Ooh, dear. Um, 
Yeah, there you go. Michigan really yeah. gave it to us. I know. And, and you know, I, my uh, family, we had scarlet and gray. We had, we had rooms in our house. My father's cars were scarlet and gray. That's how dyed in the wool Ohio State fans we were. <laughs> so, yeah, Michigan beating us. Yeah, that was, everybody knew they certainly in the OR, the Michigan fans certainly made sure yeah. that they rubbed it in. And what's your I, NFL team? Browns are my NFL team. You mm -hmm. know, I, I uh, have been diehard Browns. I, I grew up, you know, not very far from here, a couple hours. And so it's always been the Browns. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I'm so used to saying, well, there's always next year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, my son, you know, lives a few hours away from you where yeah. he, uh, where he opines um in a very detailed and uh, sophisticated way that i don't necessarily understand but most people don't either um on matters nfl yeah yes uh, he's now in the midst of a, a feud with jj watt over the years oh. yeah <laughs> yep, I so what's your go-to sandwich well I would have to say that it would be grilled cheese, but I'm very careful and try to keep a, once to, you know, once you get older, you have to watch what you eat. And so <laughs> I try to keep away from bread, but my go-to would be a grilled cheese sandwich. And your favorite movie? Hmm. Home in Indiana. You don't probably never have heard of that. It was made in the forties. Um, at our county fairgrounds where I grew up, um, obviously way before me. My father has a bit part in it. Um, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, was the secretary of the fair board then and helped organize it. And it's just a very interesting movie and has, you know, our fairgrounds in it. And it's just a real, the the, the plot of it is okay, but the just the nostalgia of it for me is is pretty high. So I'd have to say I love that movie. And other than that, I like movies, but I'm not like, you know, I can't say. And who's the star of Home in Indiana? I don't even know. It's <laughs> an Afro-American guy. I don't even know. Oh, okay. All right. Um, a Mac or PC? PC. My husband is like PC all the way. And, you know, he like direct, he's He's like my husband and son are our IT people at home, so they direct everything. So, PC. Yeah, and no I'm choice. Fine. Yeah, yeah. I don't have, that is really true. No choice. Yeah. <laughs> Beatles or Stones? Beatles. And it follows um, everybody in the Beatles or Stones, uh, and the Beatles thing has to split between Lennon and McCartney. So, well, McCartney certainly outlasted Lennon, um, but <laughs> yes. I, I thought Lennon was probably not the better artist, but just the better um, proponent of different causes in the world. And um, I, I, I do like that. I thought sometimes Yoko Ono was a little bit much, but... And, and some of the things they did were a little bit over the top, but certainly um, I, I I would probably take Lennon. Well, thanks, um, Tracy. Um, I appreciate it. Um, I um, 
I was trying to record a little intro for this earlier on, and I, I realized that um, we've known each other for the best part of 30 years. Um, and in Did some you ways, record about how we got to know each other? Did you say that? Uh, I, I, I edited out all of the bits where you behave badly. Um, uh, <laughs> no, you were behaving badly, as I recall. Okay. I've edited all of those bits. I mean, we're, you know... Uh, we're at that stage in our life where, as you say, we just let that go now. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But you were the one reminiscing, so I just was going to bring that up, just so everybody yeah. had that straight. Yeah, you, you didn't. You didn't have to actually. You know, you could have just let that go. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, it'll. Um, these are done in advance, so it'll be a while before it comes out. But when it does, I'll let you know and. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and I wish you well um, in the uh, sorting out your anxiety and indecision <laughs> over the next few months. <laughs> All right. Thank you. It was really lovely talking to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.